Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ongoingness, hosted by Jenny, that is me. And this week for our creative prompt, I'm thinking that it can be very freeing sometimes to work really, really small if you're used to working big, or really big if you're used to working small. But an exercise that I've always found really helpful when I'm sort of stuck in a rut, no matter what medium you're working in, is to do collage work. So this week's creative prompt is to take cut up pieces of paper, found materials, and create a five by five small painting, if you will, or a very small visual piece. This is completely free to do, which often the best projects are, and you can just take the magazines you have in your house or any newspapers and stuff you have lying around to create this five by five piece of painting. And of course, if you want to share it out to us, we'll always be happy to share it out. But again, just to get you guys moving and going throughout the week if you're feeling stuck or uninspired. So with that, this week for our interview, we have Shraddha Kochar, who was born in Delhi, India, and is a textile artist and knitwear designer based in New York. Shraddha is best known for her homespun and hand-knitted khadi sculptures using kala cotton, an inherently organic cotton strain indigenous to India. Her work is at an intersection of material memory, sustainability, and intergenerational healing. Focusing on generating a physical archive of personal and collective South Asian narratives linked to women's work, invisible labor, and grief, the work is large-scale and will exist beyond whispers over generations. To talk about the work description a little bit, the work is made from hand-spinning kala cotton, a cotton crop indigenous to India on a portable booklet spinning wheel called a charka, and hand-knitting it into textures and structures that mimic the skin on our bodies. Focusing and investing resources lost and born out of colonization in India, such as khadi, a self-reliant and equitable practice of textile making in kala cotton, a miracle cotton crop that sustains completely on seasonal rainfall as solutions to climate change, water shortage, soil degradation, and social inequity. Built from an ongoing library of seed bank, the documents indigenous cotton strains found across the world, unraveling the intersection of words, cotton, cloth, colonization, and community. Shraddha's mission is to understand the potential and soil and to establish an alternate system of textile farming and making that discourages modern technology that feasts on the felling of forests and extraction of resources. I am thrilled to have Shraddha here and this was a really enjoyable conversation for me and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. See you at the end of the episode. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in textiles as a medium? My name is Shraddha, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm essentially a textile artist and a knitwear designer based in Brooklyn. And I'm originally from Delhi, India. I've always been fascinated by textiles, but I didn't know I would land here. I would be an artist. I think I always saw textiles as this beautiful medium of sort of connecting with people, both that are present and those who aren't. So a lot of intergenerational narratives is really where I've been interested in. And that's kind of where knitting also comes into play because I was taught how to knit by my grandmother. So there's this sort of need to make textiles to sort of connect to people and just connect to my family and my roots. It is amazing how many projects start there. I had a project I did in undergrad where I was working on studying the relationship beyond memory because my grandmother was suffering at the time from memory loss. 
I feel like so many of our projects start with the roots of our grandparents or something of that nature. So I really connect to that. Did your grandmother teach you to weave? Is that where you started with weaving or knitting? So it was mostly knitting. My grandmother basically sort of had four kids. One of them was my father. And I think she sort of knitting as a means to kind of make money. She would sort of knit these sweaters and sell them after her husband had died. So I think she would sort of knit around me, both my maternal and paternal like grandmothers would sort of knit and there is this sort of legacy of knitting for the kids which I was really fascinated by and I was always passively around that so I think pretty early on I kind of was interested in thread I didn't know if knitting was my medium I fell into knitting by accident I had applied for fashion school and you know when you're young you're told being a fashion designer is what is really an option if you're interested in anything remotely close to fabric. There was this sort of glamorized essence to cloth, which was always associated to being a fashion designer. Oh, yeah. I remember when I was 13, I went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and I was a complete tomboy, not very connected in a way to fashion design, aside from just I would always be drawing clothes, but I didn't understand that it could actually be something that could be an exist in a museum. Like I, I didn't understand that textiles could be this thing that could be so glamorous and be seen as a fine art. I don't know if you had a similar experience, but it was always very practical, like, okay, this is weaving and knitting is something that you do to stay warm. You know, you create soft things for babies. You, uh, It felt much more craft-oriented than fine art-oriented. So that kind of blew my mind when I was really young. Yeah, it was essentially the same experience as and when I would sort of interact with textiles even more and more. I think my eyes opened up to this huge avenue, which was your work could be fine art. Your work could be design. Like it doesn't have to be either or. It could exist as both and neither. So that was to- that was really fascinating, I think. And this is a recent revelation. So it's not, I think if you asked me this question four years ago, I would probably be still working in fashion, still thinking that I needed to make very practical things and very sort of, Things that kind of adorn your body at all times. Right. Wearable. Mm -hmm. A wearable. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, you are the founder. Are you the founder or co-founder of Loda? So I'm the co-founder of Loda. And Loda is essentially a independent textile studio where we make shirts specifically from textile waste. So pretty early on, I think I did mention that textiles kind of run in my family. And I think they were they were essentially a huge source of, I mean, they were the only source of revenue for my family. So I think I was always grown up also looking at the very unglamour, ungla- like not glamorous sort of things, which meant textile waste. Like I would sort of walk into text, like I was growing up, I think I remember climbing onto these mountains of textile waste. And that was essentially my playground, I think, my mom. So my mom was a doctor, I mean, is a doctor. So she would essentially be out and about at work. And I would spend a lot of time with my dad, which meant I had to be in these garment manufacturing sort of spaces. And I think I was really familiarized with the labor also that went around making clothes and making textiles, but also the textile waste. So a lot of the issues, but also like the beauty 
I think, uh, and when you are interacting with the material so up close, it teaches you. So yes, back to Lota. I am the co-founder and creative director, and we make clothes out of textile waste. And my partner is essentially a graphic designer and a motion designer. So we are the first sort of CGI models who are brown. All the work sort of presented in a way that it's mostly shot and worked on CGI sort of models. I was wondering how you landed there with the CGI. It's so, so interesting. And for those listening, I'll link all of this in the bio of the description so you can see the work Loda is doing and also the CGI element that we're referring to. So the CGI element was quite interesting because when me and my partner started, we had no investment. We had no money. It really started from a place of scarcity. As so many good things do. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was extremely beautiful because we were anyway making clothes out of what was already existing. And I think as we thought about it even more, we sort of wanted to present it in a way that was equally thoughtful. And that's kind of why we started working towards building these CGI models, because A, I think people don't realize the sort of carbon footprint that also goes behind making beautiful images. And it's it's basically bringing in so many people together. And I think we wanted to pay everyone fairly. And, you know, as a as a brand that sort of started as an art project, which meant on the backs of whatever savings me and my partner Adi had, that's where it started. And then we wanted to create, build our own virtual world. It's really exciting to see. And I love that you've brought in CGI in this way through the lens of sustainability, which I never really thought about. Do you know the brand Margaret Burton? Uh, no, I don't. She's a fashion designer who I went to school with. Her whole thing was always very much pulled by sustainability and using materials that already existed. She pulls existing clothing, and I know a lot of brands are doing this now, but only existing materials. And one of the things that launched her there was that she was doing an internship for a person I won't name. And, but I'm sure you know how common this is that she, when she was interning for this high end fashion company, when they were done with the clothing that had gone down the runway for the season, they would tear and cut it up intentionally and then throw it in the dump so that, you know, homeless people or people who are rummaging through could not wear them and then bring down the value of the garment. Which I find so, 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 so cruel in a way because it, also, it doesn't make sense. These resources are already out there. The energy, you already use that energy to build these things. It's kind of petty. I find it really petty. It's horrible. It's, it's beyond petty. It's like taking resources that have been made and then actively destroying them so that they're not no longer usable. And for what reason besides business? Yeah. So I like this idea of extending that a piece further and thinking also about not only the material, the use of the material and the life of the material after it's been already created to make something new, the old new. And then in addition to that, to think about everything that goes into marketing an image, the shoot, the people, the models, and how do we, how do we think about that conversation as well? So that's really interesting. Yeah, I think from quite early on, I think also because I'm I lived in India all my life. And I think one thing that was always so important to me in general, I think, was community and sort of people. I think more than what you do, it is important for you to have this beautiful community. Like, that's kind of why I make, you know, it's not the glitz or the glamour. It's mostly like connecting with people and 
conversation. It's this. Yeah. 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 It's this. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. It's, it's central to everything. If you're not touching somebody in some way and then leaving no room for them to respond back, you're just kind of having a conversation with yourself, which is a lot less fun <laughs> and definitely not as impactful. Yeah. It also feel makes you feel weak. Like you just feel hollow or you just feel, I don't know. That's, this is something I, I think I definitely think about a lot is how does the work that you do impact things or people more than you, you know, or more than what you're immediately interacting with. It's not the money. No, it's the collaboration. I feel like every project I've ever worked on that I really remember well is typically a collaborative project. And it's because a collaborative project holds so many different elements that we need. Validation from others, validation that our ideas can be valuable to other people, but also an exchange of energy so that those people can then re-energize our ideas, which can be stale if only shared within our own mind. 100%. And it also leaves space for the work to grow because you're at the end of the day, you're just one person doing something. And what's the point of it if it doesn't if it doesn't get passed on or if it doesn't sort of carry on, you know, like where's the longevity to the things you do? Do they sort of last beyond you? Do they last while you're still around? Yeah, it's reminding me that I have a friend who was visiting Spain and she saw this large scale loom project where everyone in the community and I've seen this done in a few different places. I think it was done in Richmond, Virginia. I'm sure it's done. It's been done for many, many years. There was a set of pile of materials, essentially, and everyone in the community came to this large loom and could come and add to the weaving, whether they knew how to weave or not. It didn't matter. You know, just you have a set of needles and a bunch of material and people just kind of came and added to it however they wanted to. And by the end, you have this large scale weaving that's been made by an entire community of strangers, essentially. And the end product is just so much more visually stunning in so many ways than anyone could ever imagine. It's just kind of this big surprise. And I, I love that idea. For sure. I think to that point as well, I think uh, I live with another person in uh, my home studio situation. And we essentially have a knitting machine and a potter's wheel in our living room. And it's it's basically, I think I started the knitting. And now what we really do is we kind of, the machine's sort of there. So whoever sort of comes in, they can maybe knit a little and we're kind of trying to make this communal scarf, you know, scarf that people who've been in our space have made with us. Like it's it's a way to just hold on to that memory or like hold on to that time. Is it going to be like a sisterhood of the traveling pants situation where I <laughs> the scarf? I really hope not. I don't know where it's going to go. I hope that's not the case, but could be cute. I don't know. Maybe we're just doing it right now and we're going to see where this goes. Yeah, I think it's super open-ended. Uh, we weren't really thinking of anything. We wanted like a very physical, tactile thing to remind us of all these beautiful memories we've shared together in this house. That's lovely. I love that idea. On that note, it's the perfect segue into what is your creative process looking like these days? What is your studio looking like? What is your day-to-day -day looking like? And you can go into as much detail as you want or as little, but you know, I, I, a lot of people 
have very different ideas of what a studio looks like. It could be our bedroom, it could be our basement, it could be our backyard, it could be a shed, it could be a separate studio. But we all know for monetary reasons, for reasons of opportunity, time, it could be a place where we practice for 10 minutes a day or five hours a day. So what is your setup kind of feeling like right now? So in terms of the the process that I usually have is the most non-linear. It's mostly cyclical, but it's also like very chaotic. But that chaos is usually balanced out with a very clean studio. I currently live in this sort of space in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. I'm in Crown Heights too. Oh, amazing. We're neighbors. We're neighbors. And we can talk after this call in where exactly we live so we don't share it with everyone. Yes, yes. That sounds amazing. But I sort of walked away from a little toxic situation that I was in before in terms of my housing. And we've all had those, unfortunately. Ah, the realities of living in New York. It's part of it. (laughs) Fair warning to all who want to come here. You will find one toxic sort of housing situation. But then you will get out of it. Yeah, and you'll find a safe, safe haven for yourself. And that's kind of what I I found for myself. It's this beautiful home studio setup wherein I kind of don't have a lot of boundaries. Like my bedroom has a lot of the things I'm working on currently, a lot of textiles sort of hung um, on the wall, a lot of illustrative knits to give you a little picture there's this sort of knitted textile piece that I did of me and my dad that's kind of facing me right now and some paintings that I did when I was younger and a small note from my uh, nephew uh, my five-year-old nephew which kind of just says miss you kiss you but I think there's there's this sweet innocence and it's really cute it's actually like this very funky card which has an angel-ish sketch facing the sun with clouds and flowers around so I like to keep that close just to remind me to keep it fun and keep it real so that's my bedroom and then the living room sort of is really where I spin in the morning like I'll spend an hour spinning my own cotton that must be so relaxing to start the morning that way Yeah, it's kind of really beautiful that I fell into this sort of space where I wanted to spin my own cotton uh, and learn how to spin my own cotton. And for those of you who probably don't know, I think a huge part of my practice is navigating through cotton as a commodity, as a raw material, as sort of this bridge between generations and people. Because I think cotton is basically this beautiful thing that's touched everyone's lives, be it someone who's six or 60. You know, you always interact with cotton, be it your bed sheet, your underwear, your curtains, your clothes, your t-shirt. So I work with cotton in my studio. So I'll start with spinning of cotton. And it's sort of very fluid in that sense. Like I'll I'll make myself a cup of chai and I'll sit and spin. And then I'm going to probably get super anxious about the 70,000 things that are on my to-do list. We'll address that overwhelm later. <laughs> yeah, it's it's essentially, I think I don't have any sort of lines or boundaries, which is probably not the best, but I, that's how I work at, at the moment. That's how so many of us work. 
Yeah, like getting up. I think also a huge part is that I feel really excited about what I do. And I don't know if it's good for my mental health to sort of be working in my bedroom and sort of, you know, navigating about my day, but still sort of working whenever I get a second on things for my art practice or for a design project that I have on. So I think for me, the process really starts with material most often. And where do you source those materials typically? So I work with this miracle sort of cotton fiber, which is called Kala Cotton. And what's so fantastic about Kala Cotton is that it basically grows without any artificial irrigation. It's this crop that existed in the Indian sort of farming landscape before colonization. And it's more or less wiped away from from the landscape now because of this transition to mechanized textiles. So I currently work with an NGO. NGO is essentially a nonprofit organization in India called Khamir. And I work with them to sort of source this color cotton. But at the same time, I also have this thing that I do over Instagram, which is called Cotton Connections, wherein folks who probably heard me talk about my work, who've seen the work and who want to connect over cotton they're sort of they they have access to cotton farms in their sort of family homes so recently I got this huge box of raw cotton growing in Savannah that somebody heard a webinar that I was speaking at and they essentially reached out to me and uh, recently being like oh I heard your talk in September and I have sort of this access to this raw cotton that's essentially growing in my backyard. I don't know much about it, but I'm happy to send it to you. So now I have some cotton fiber that I need to clean and gin with my hands and sort of make them into bales and then spin. So in terms of sourcing the material, I think, again, it goes back to all these connections that I'm making with people, which kind of feed into what I make. The village is very important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's kind of my process. Did that answer your question? It does answer my question. And I'm so curious how long the process of taking a piece of raw cotton typically and then bringing that all the way to the spinning of the fiber so that it's usable. How long would you say that typically takes? So I would essentially be spinning every day for an hour and it probably takes me about three months or two months. That's right, people. <laughs> I wanted to hear how long this process takes. That's textiles. But that would also give me yarn just to make a sock. So it's this consistent spinning. Such a labor of love. Yeah, yeah. And now I think I've just stopped calculating the number of hours I put, which is probably the worst practice. So I do not recommend that. Please, if you're a textile maker, make sure you document the hours you spend with these textiles and not be like me (laughs) on that I don't really document mine either and I'm I that's a really important point so take notes everybody I'm curious if there's a specific project you're working on now that you feel really connected to or it could be an older project that you've worked on that you'd like to share I have so many beautiful projects that I have been a part of or that I'm also currently working on But I think one of them is definitely my own art practice with cotton, like I mentioned. So I essentially work with soft sculpture and these sort of knitted essays. I like that description a lot, a knitted essay. Yeah. 
I think that's kind of my way of journaling what's really going on. So that's that's a huge part of my art practice. And I like to keep doing that and not sort of, you know, falling into the cycle of making money, sustaining your practice. So I will start with that as a project. I think that's something that makes me really excited. And what I'm really trying to do with this work is a create these systems around regenerative cotton species that are that need revival that need to be documented that need to be talked about because instead of investing so much money into these uh, alternative resources I think we do need to look back into the resources that are regenerative that have existed in the legacy of the land that we're on and I don't think we need to find the new it material it is really going back and find like re doing and sort of unraveling what what changed and what went wrong there keeping our eyes a little bit wider for what's what's already there yeah yeah and also I think there's this sort of snobbery or like this sense of oh like where we have so much access to technology and we have so much access to all these resources sort of the local wisdom is isn't as you know as superior I think there is this sort of superiority complex as well, where it's like, oh, where people in the East or the makers are craftspeople and where designers and where these glamorous sort of like torch holders of this supreme skill. But really, it's these skills come from somewhere. I think being respectful to your privilege and also like what you receive from generations of this knowledge being passed on and also the land that you kind of exist on I think you have to acknowledge that there's something that existed before you which was probably more superior than you that's such a such a lovely point and it reminds me too of how so many of us kind of get to this point of love with this medium from a pretty humble place especially within textiles like how you came to it through your family and for me it was that when I was a kid I would always get hand-me-down clothes from my cousins and so I never really purchased my like my my family didn't really need to purchase clothes for me it was very lucky because my cousins my older cousins would just give me trash bags of their old clothes so I I was dressed well but it was all secondhand and I actually developed a real love for secondhand clothing from a really young age because it was extremely exciting for me to go to their house and pick through their old clothes that were too small on them. And that process of like using materials that were already there and then having to style them to fit me, even though they were fitting somebody else initially was was a lot of fun for me as a kid. So it came from this place of it wasn't wasn't pretension. It was just like reinvention. It was this idea of creating something new with the old. So I really connect to that. Yeah, I think that's why I love textile makers. I think I I love surrounding myself with people who kind of share that same school of thought. And I've worked in fashion before and I've been in, I think especially in New York as well. um, It's a whole different ballgame, I think. I mean, I wouldn't even say there's this idea of pretending but it's just this idea that oh we're superior because we know how to cut a piece of you know cloth so yeah I kind of I kind of miss that about at least when I was in India I was so close to folks who were making constantly and I think New York has this sort of really intense pace the pace of life is so fast 
It's very distracting. I've been here for 10 years now. I feel like I'm having to unlearn so much of what New York has taught me. And that's not disrespect to New York. It's that New York is, like you're saying, this very unique place with this very unique attitude, with this intense pace and drive that exists not quite in the same way anywhere else in the world. And there, there's a lot of good that comes from that um, in terms of how productive you are and who you meet. But it is important to address this idea that, like you were saying with your nephew's card, you want to remember to stay grounded. And it's very hard to stay grounded here when there's so much pressure and distraction. 100%. There's everyone's always hustling, which I love. I absolutely love that about the city. And I think the city has given me so much. And I'm so, so, so grateful for that. But the pace is fast. It's ruthless. If you're not on the boat, you're you're not on the boat. You're just kind of grounding somewhere on the side. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to address that too. I want to, I'd put a pin in earlier and I'd love to go back to that overwhelm that is really hard to avoid here, but also just present everywhere now in the world, no matter where you are because of the access to the digital and all of that. But how do you manage and work with yourself to persevere and keep pulling inspiration from things when it is feeling difficult and you are trying to keep up with the pace or maybe you're not, but how do you identify that within yourself and then try to address it? I think so. A huge part of that is that recently, I mean, I went through the most difficult times of my life, like a year ago, like I had never experienced anything like it. And before that, I think pre that I always thought of myself as this happy-go-lucky can like doesn't need mental health breaks doesn't need you know I can I can work around everything super adjustable like I I was really at it I was ready to sort of be out and about in the city I was doing everything that you would expect anyone who's in the city to be doing until this like really huge thing happened which made me sort of question everything I understood about being here on this on this land or just being alive, I think. And this may go into a very philosophical sort of space. Let's go if you're, you're open like- to it. <laughs> um, so I think a lot about death and sort of what, how many, you know, you're here for a reason and you're here for a short period, uh, maybe, or maybe not. So I think I really started to reevaluate my interactions with, I think specifically money as one, being an artist. And I think there's always this this sort of thing where you're a struggling artist for a really, really long time till you, you can actually sustain your practice. So you're you're taking up seven projects at a time. You're you know, you're constantly at it. Your your head's in seven different places. But I think this year I really decided to sort of take breaks to begin with and also just remind myself that I don't have to do everything and I don't have to make insane amounts of money. I just need to make just the amount to, you know, help me get by. And that I think just, I don't think a lot of people address this as much, but I'd love to do that. I feel like, especially artists, there's this absolute silence when it comes to the financial aspect. Nobody really wants to talk about it. It's so infuriating. It's one of the reasons I started this podcast. It's not addressed. It's frustrating. Yeah. And I think 
again, that like glamorized sort of pictures projected as to, oh, like we love, we love this artist and we love their work, but there's never this like conversation around, well, how do they sustain their practice? Can we help them? How did they afford a studio and a home at the same time in New York City or London or wherever they live? Yeah. And a lot of the times you will find out that they come from generational wealth as well. They are, they come from sort of these privileged sort of spaces. And it's so important to address that. Also, how I think finances is such a huge aspect of, I think, when you're distress, I think distress is mostly caused by finances, at least in my case. I think it's the leading cause of divorce, breakup. Everything. 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 It it is totally at the root of everything. I agree. So I think in terms of that, like just letting myself know that I do not, I don't need to compete to be making sort of this XYZ amount of money that is sort of, you know, I feel like also New York's kind of like that where you're in the subway, everyone's talking about money. You're at a party, somebody's talking about money, like the dreaded what do you do question, which is really how much money do you make? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, I actually don't need to be, I don't need to connect with that. Like, I don't want that in my life right now. I just want to make the things I'm making without the pressure of a label, a pressure of a tag, a dollar sign around it. I can't tell you how many times I've been at a party and I say to somebody, it's like with a bunch of you know, all kinds of people, whatever, are present there. And I say something that somebody asked me the dreaded question, which is, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a weaver. Like the question changes. The answer changes to the question depending on my mood and day, as it does for many of us. But so many times I say that and somebody's eyes just glaze over like, oh, I'm going to have nothing in common with you. Yeah, yeah. And that's so sad. It's a missed opportunity. Yeah, it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, I experienced that a lot as well. But I mean, now I I sort of have come to a point where I'm like, honestly, I am just going to let you know that I don't care. I don't care about the money you make, the lifestyle that you live. Is your work benefiting people? Are you doing something cool? Are you making things? That's sort of my mode of currency at this point. And maybe... Maybe this is going to backfire for me, but I'm enjoying my time making stuff and not caring so much or, I mean, caring decently about money, but not giving money so much attention and like this power to grip over my life and what I do. To tie this into talking about your practice almost as a sort of, or spinning specifically, almost sort of as as a meditation, it reminds me that when I started to teach myself to weave a few years ago, because I'm still fairly new, I'd say about four or five years ago now, I started teaching myself to weave through Sayori weaving. Are you familiar with Sayori? Is that the smaller loom? Yeah. They're travel looms and they're, and it's the Japanese style loom, they're only two petal. They range in size, but they're generally very small. And I don't, I don't want to um, misspeak to the philosophy around it, but it's definitely very based in meditation. It's a kind of weaving that is not meant for conceptualizing pieces. And to specify on that, I had, I was applying to grad school. I was thinking of applying to grad school for textile design because I didn't study it in undergrad and I wanted to find a job in it. So I was like, okay, maybe this is an opportunity if I can find a scholarship, whatever. I went through the whole typical thought process. And 
I went to build out a portfolio to apply to grad school. And I went to the Sayori studio before I bought my own loom eventually. And I had come with a notebook and a bunch of concepts in mind. And I started and they said to me, you know, we don't recommend you start with a concept. We don't recommend you have anything in mind. Just leave. Right. Just let it be a healing process and don't come in with such a plan. It kind of defeats the whole purpose. And it's not like that's such a, it's a simple concept, but it's, it's hard to do for people who are in New York or in this kind of environment, not only because it's hard to slow it down, but because it's part of this finance question, really, I think. It's like, okay, well, how will I monetize meditation? How will I monetize just practicing? What will that do for me? What will that mean for me? And and once you let that go, it's very freeing, but it is scary. Yeah, it's it's super scary because again, your time is measured in dollars. <laughs> it's like it's essentially oh, like you were spinning for an hour in the morning versus you sort of building this design for XYZ. So you'll always come across those questions. And I think the second you tell yourself, okay, actually, it's fine. I do not need to do this. I need to be at a place where I feel great and I'm still doing what I'm doing or I want to do. And to address the mental health and the finance and all of that, it also relates to, I mean, I know so many people are feeling this coming out of the pandemic, but it's also not the overwhelm is nothing new. I've heard so many people talk about trying to justify spending money on therapy because we are in the US. We know therapy can be very expensive in this country. So expensive. Ridiculously expensive. But at the end of the day, it's this idea of trying to understand, okay, what's this practice going to do for me if I can't monetize it in a way? Why would I spend the money on something that is, um, oh, oh, maybe I'll fix it myself. It's like, if we're not going to spend our money on mental health, what are we going to spend it on? So it's it's the same with an art practice. I feel so strongly about this lately. That's so well put. Honestly, that's such a good point. Yeah, if you don't put it in for yourself, for your betterment and for your growth, where is that going to go? Where are you going to hold it? <laughs> what are you going to do with it? If you don't do things that you love. Right. It's at the and that should be at the root of everything. So maybe the, this idea really could be wrapped up, not wrapped up, but summarized in this idea that okay, if finance and money and the dollar is at the root of everything, that being in the US, but obviously relating to every crevice of the world at this time, maybe somehow trying to switch that to health, whatever that means, being at the joy, being at the center of everything that you do. And obviously, that's a very complicated shift that involves how privileged are you? What resources do you have? But I like this idea that you're bringing forth with the cotton of returning to what's in front of us, returning to what we have, returning to our natural resources, and what that means for our mental health when we can actually learn to see it. Be self-sustaining as well. Also, the fact that I can start from seed to stitch and make myself something. I'm so self-sufficient. Empowering. Yeah, it's so empowering just being able to do that, being able to make something for myself or someone who I love from the very scratch. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're living the dream a little bit. 
It's pretty great. It's uh it's so awesome. This is like my my adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> it feels it feels good to it feels good to remember why we're doing what we're doing, right? That we do want to get up in the morning and feel energized to do this thing. And when it stops feeling good, then we switch the medium or we switch, you know, we take a break or we focus on our mental health. We should be proud of ourselves for doing the hard thing. And nobody's sitting around and saying it's not incredibly difficult. We've spoken a lot about sustainability. I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but do you feel there are specific changes we should be thinking about in terms of textiles and sustainability specifically that you'd like to see move forward within the industry? So I think beyond sustainability, a space that I'm sort of working in is regeneration and regenerative textiles. I think beyond being sustainable, that's kind of why we started Lota. And I think as and when I'm I'm learning more and I'm sort of, you know, I'm the work is teaching me so much more in that realm as well. Lota started with a sustainability sort of vision and mission in mind. And I think going forward, I truly believe that if we do need or if we do want things to last and we're recording on Earth Day. It's Earth Day. Yes, it's Earth Day. On that note, I think regeneration is definitely a space that I think we should all sort of be thinking about. I think we've passed the time where we should all be thinking about sustainability at the root of everything we do, because it's no longer enough to work with just dead stock fabric. Or I mean, it's great. It's awesome. Everyone should be working with dead stock fabric. But what beyond that? And I think that's where regenerative textiles and regenerative farming, regenerative fashion. And what regenerative really means is the cyclical sort of nature of the materials we use, which means working with materials that grow so in their own time, in their own natural sort of habitats and their ecologies. And then you don't actually have to buy seeds or create these seeds in labs. So really keeping it cyclical is where uh, that's at. So And then when we're done, putting it back in the soil so that the soil can regenerate. Yeah. And I think what most of us don't realize sometimes, especially when you're sitting in the West, is that all this material comes from somewhere. Cotton is grown somewhere. And for those who actually don't know, the cotton belts in India, for example, are the highest number of farmer suicides because of debt. Because you're consistently having to buy more pesticide, more insecticide, more seeds, GMO seeds that are not regenerative, that you cannot sort of get back. And there is a huge human cost to these materials. So I think regenerative textiles, regenerative farming is really a beautiful space. I think that everyone should feel excited about and also support. If you can support this work, if you can support a research, if you can support through buying textiles, this may, may not be a plug. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can sort of buy directly from the farmers, directly from the weavers, directly from folks who are making these textiles and objects. And if you have specific people in mind, companies, farmers, manufacturers, that you would like people to know about, I'm happy to link those in the bio. Yeah, absolutely. So for a lighthearted question that we ask everyone, 
what did you want to be when you were little? And what do you want to be now imagining yourself five years in the future? Okay, honestly, when I was a kid, I had no idea what I wanted to be. I think I picked up the fashion design sort of bug when I was 17. So fairly older than when I was little. I think when I was a little person, I was just having a good time, just drawing stuff and like dancing. I used to love dancing. I was about to like not go to college and dance. So I guess I am that that person who does everything she wants, (laughs) irrespective of what society sort of requires you to do. I think that's the goal. That should be the goal for all of us. We're all trying to get back there somehow. And also just on a on a different note as well, like I had no idea I would be an artist. If you asked me this question four years ago, I would probably still be working in design, still making clothes, which I still love doing, by the way. But I think there is this sort of common perception as well that art is for the rich. And as in more, I sort of started stepping away from the money. It made me realize, no, all of us have this creative bug in all of us whether you work in finance engineering if you're a doctor I think there's so much creativity in every field and within every person it's the child in there yeah yeah and every industry needs it that childhood wisdom whatever it is thank you so much this was an amazing conversation and I hope you all enjoyed I will link all the things in the bio so you can learn more about Shrada's incredible work and thank you so much for coming on yes thank you so much for having me this was so fun hey you yes you Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ongoingness with the super smart and talented Shraddha Kochar. Want to reach out? Find us on the gram at ongoingnesspod or online at anchor.fm slash ongoingness. As always, a huge thanks to Erica Enriquez who produced the music for our pod and to Shortstack New York where it was recorded. Additional thanks goes to our amazing sound editor, Mahogany Cheetah. And we will see you on the next one.